0: Hello, my name is David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future. Today's episode was recorded live this weekend at the Hay Festival, where I was joined on stage by David Miliband, former foreign secretary, and for the last 10 years, based in New York as the head of the International Rescue Committee, and by the writer, academic, and broadcaster, Helen Thompson. We were there to talk about the past, present, and future of American power. What explains America's extraordinary dominance over global affairs? Can anything justify it? And what is going to replace it? We talk about Ukraine. We talk about China. We talk about climate change and the energy transition. But before all of that, for reasons to be explained, we started with Henry Kissinger. Past, present, future is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Listeners can subscribe to Europe's leading literary magazine for a special rate at lrb.me ppf. That's lrb.me ppf. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming. Um, my name's David Runciman, and this is a live edition of the podcast I host called Past, Present, Future, with the London Review of Books. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by David Miliband and Helen Thompson. Today happens to be the 27th of May, the 100th birthday of Henry Kissinger. He was born on this day 100 years ago in Germany. Uh, He moved to the United States in 1938. We're not here to wish him a happy birthday. We're not really here to talk about Kissinger and his life, but we are here to talk about... What Kissinger in many ways has come to represent, which is American power. The Kissinger century is in lots of ways the American century. And for many people, not just when he was Secretary of State, but as the advisor to presidents ever since, Henry Kissinger embodies that. We're going to talk about the state of the world today. We're going to talk about what might come next. We're going to talk about Ukraine. We're going to talk about China. We'll probably talk about Donald Trump too. We'll try and cover a lot. We'll leave a bit of time for questions at the end. But I just want to start by asking David and Helen about this phrase, the American century, and how you understand American power. All of our lives have been shaped by it. Every single person in this room has been shaped by the fact that we've been living in a world dominated by the United States of America. David, I mean, you've seen American power close up, right? You were foreign secretary, you've lived in New York, for 10 years now, you, you know what this looks like up close. How would you characterise what American power is? Are those
1: people who think that Henry Kissinger represents it right or wrong? So the phrase American century was coined by Henry Luce uh, in 1941, the publisher of Time magazine. And I think he had an idea that America had conquered its own homeland. It had established economic and political and military institutions that brought unity and discipline on the basis of this extraordinary idea of a country that was defined by the freedom of its own citizens. It was a country defined by an idea rather than an ethnic group or by um, a monarchy. And the the issue of uh, Time magazine from 1941 said that we need to use this power globally, not just domestically. And from my point of view, um, the extraordinary strength that we've seen, I would say, until the financial crisis of 2008, was based on two things. It was based on economic power and political unity. Uh, The economic power, I was thinking about this, uh, that in 1930, 59% of American families had a car. It's extraordinary. that There was a huge middle class already by 1930, straight after the Depression. And that economic strength was based on the landmass, the immigration, the infrastructure, the finance, and already a military-industrial mm. complex. The politics, notwithstanding extraordinary injustices, remember, we're still 30 years before the passage of the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, which enfranchised black Americans fully, the politics uh, had a sense of sufficient domestic checks and balances and strength to hold the ring and an absolute commitment that abroad partisanship didn't define, divide Americans, that when you went beyond the water's edge, you spoke from the same uh, hymn sheet. And I think that sense that America had a domestic model that it wanted to protect, but it understood that it had to project that model into a rules-based international system, was actually the foundation of American power for that period, really from when it came into the war in December 1942 until the financial crisis. And the question I think we should wrestle with today is whether the the economy domestically has sufficient strength to sustain American power. I would argue yes, and we should debate whether that's the case or not. And secondly, whether the political unity... Is sufficient to sustain American power, and I would argue no. And that's what makes this such a moment, a hinge moment for the world, not just for America. So I told you we would come to Trump,
0: but before that, Helen, how how would you characterise that period? And do you also think that we're talking about from the Second World War to the financial crisis? What is the basis of that era of, and it is the most extraordinary period in in certain respects modern history, right? That the level of dominance of one political entity globally during that period. What was it based on?
2: Well, I think I would backtrack a bit and it does get back to something about Kissinger, because the decade which Kissinger came to the fore was obviously the 1970s. Though Nixon had made him National Security Advisor in 1969. He made his reputation in the in the 1970s. But this was a decade in which most people, I think, who were even paying moderate amount of attention would say the United States was in decline, that that was a, a strong narrative about American power because it was being humiliated in Vietnam. And a lot of the context in which Kissinger made the decisions in which he did was around the, the, the Vietnam War. And it was a decade in which the, one of the economic advantages that David has been talking about that had been crucial, I think, to American power, which was America's domestic oil self-sufficiency or relative domestic self-sufficiency, came to an end. And the United States was on a trajectory to become quite rapidly the largest oil-importing country in the world. And that hugely complicated its position in the Middle East. It wasn't able in any shape or form to impose its will on the Middle East under Kissinger or anyone else in in the 1970s. And it ended that decade on a note of utter humiliation when Carter ordered the rescue mission for the hostages in Iran, uh, and, and it, it, it all went disastrously wrong. So I think, on top of what David said, we need a story about how the United States went from a decade, I would suggest, of both decline and humiliation, to becoming very powerful again. And I think, in a way, that whilst it's true that after 2008... United States became more domestically divided in the way in which David said, that at the same time, that this is an era in which one crucial aspect of American power, American financial power, actually increased very considerably after the financial crisis, because the role that the Federal Reserve Board was able to play in that. And so if we look at the way in which the Biden administration responded to Russia's invasion of Ukraine last February the instrument that it chose, hoping that it would have the most impact upon Putin's decision-making, was financial sanctions. And so I I, I don't think we can understand the American story without understanding that it's got interludes, but I also think that financial power has been crucial to the story from the rise of American power at the beginning of the 20th century, the role that it played in the First World War, effectively financing Britain's war effort to its power today.
0: So, David, would you say, because one symbol of American power, never mind Henry Kissinger, is the dollar, right? The dollar as the global reserve currency, and there are many people who argue, as it were, to have the global reserve currency is the single most important thing for the the whole arc of this story. Do you think that one could characterise American power in narrower terms, as Helen has done there?
1: Well, it's certainly a foundation of America's ongoing power, but the financial strength shouldn't... Uh, divert us from other sources of strength, too. In 1990, America was 25% of global GDP. Today, it's 25% of global GDP. Despite the rise of China, despite the rise of India, despite all of the oil money going into the Gulf, America is still a quarter of global GDP. What's happened is that America's share of G7 GDP has gone from 40% to 60%. So the decline over the last thirty years has been Europe, Japan, and Canada. It's been us. Yeah. Mm. No, I mean, it's really important that we understand, and, you, and Europe as a whole, actually, uh, as well as uh, Japan. And if you, go, I mean, the only thing I'll say on, to add on the Kissinger story, he wrote a book called World Order, and it said there were three sources of order in the world. One is empires. Two is balance of power. And three is multilateral sharing of power, which he was less keen on that doesn't really exist today. And what we're potentially on the, on the edge of is a, a new global dispensation in which there is a new balance of power between a Chinese strength and an American strength. And what I think we should discuss tonight is whether that's the right vision of the future or whether, in fact, that's too simplistic. I think that is too simplistic. I think we've got other countries, medium-sized powers, India, Turkey, Indonesia that makes this a a multi-aligned world in which there are going to be different coalitions of interest on different sets of issues. And maybe, I don't know if you want to come onto that through the Ukraine lens, but I'm always worried when people say we're moving to a multipolar world or a Cold War world. That suggests fixed blocks. I think we're seeing a much more fluid situation for reasons that we we can get into. Yeah, so I do want to come onto Ukraine in a second, but you did say one of the
0: possible sources of power, as Kissinger understood it, is empire. And the American century is often described as the era of American imperial power, and particularly, not exclusively, but particularly for its critics, the United States is sometimes derided as an imperial power. Does it make sense, Helen, to call it an empire? Is, is, is actually, are we, or were we, are we living in the age of the American empire?
2: I don't think so, in the way in which empire is usually used in that. Context. I think it's quite hard to tell a geopolitical history of the 20th century and the 21st century and turn the United States into an imperial power, not least because every concept of empire that we've got historically has involved, at the very least, the assimilation of territory, if not the conquest uh, of territory. Has the United States extracted resources from? other parts of the world that are underdeveloped in comparison to the United States? And has it used some elements of coercive power to do that? Have its corporations been part of of that? I would say yes, but as I say, I I wouldn't really put empire as a historical label on that. And I think part of the reason why we get into difficulty thinking about this is, is that the place where I think it does make more sense to think about The United States, as an empire, is actually in its own historical development. The fact that it started off on the eastern seaboard with those thirteen colonies and ended up as a continental state, including by war with Mexico and conquering the West, and one of its utter strengths, I think, throughout the 20th century and it retains it in this respect to this day, is the fact that it's such a large country with such a abundant natural resource base, completely in comparison with the number of individual European countries that there are with relatively poor resource bases in comparison. And I think we can understand the way in which many Europeans reacted to the American century through the fact that they saw the United States as an empire in that sense, in terms of its own territorial formation, not in terms of the way in which it dealt with the rest of the world.
0: So so with that historical context... Let's talk about Ukraine. There has been quite a lot of talk about Ukraine, and some of it self-congratulatory, and some of it particularly from people who have been prime minister of this country, that Ukraine shows the strength of the West, that people thought that this war would divide us. There is much more unity than might have been anticipated. And some of this derives from a more familiar sense of American leadership. So there's an America, and there's the West, in the ways that ECHO... Earlier periods, 20th century periods of American dominance. Do you think the Ukraine war has revealed a more united West than we thought? And has it revealed American leadership within
1: that? So my take is that Ukraine has united the West, but it's divided the West from large parts of the world. In fact, more, countries representing more than 50% of uh, the global population have refused to back what by the, the condemnation of what by any standards is a grotesque abuse of international law in the original invasion and well-founded claims of appalling war crimes in the way that civilians have been targeted in, in Ukraine. And, I mean, my own organisation has people close to the front line and the stories that they bring back are, are horror stories. But just to, to step back to the wider Ukraine um, issue and America's role in it, a couple of points... I think that you have to remember that Ukraine happened soon after what by any standards was a debacle at the end of August 2021 in Kabul, mm-hmm. Afghanistan. And that was a, a divide. If you want to see a divided West there, it, there it was. And six months later, I think one has to then recognize that the administration has done a remarkable job of cohering a wide ranging Western alliance. It's led with enormous military effort remember the U.S, just to get this in perspective, the U.S. Pentagon budget is 800 billion dollars I put it in perspective. It's, it's four times as much as Chinese spend on military power, and it's more than 12 or 14 times what the U.K. spends on military effort. to so get it in perspective. And there, it's not just been American finance, it's been American military effort that has underpinned the Ukrainian defense. The point about the divided world I worry about a lot. Uh, Only five countries have supported the Russians in the United Nations, but 40 or 50 countries have refused to join in the condemnation, not because they support the invasion of Ukraine, but they feel that the West has been guilty of hypocrisy and weakness in dealing with global problems over the last 30 years. And it's impossible. I've come here from, from Nairobi, uh, from, in, from Kenya, uh, where I was with, with the International Rescue Committee this week. If you want to see the, the, the scale of fury, just read one of the speeches by President Ruto of Kenya, who talks about how the effort in Ukraine should be contrasted with the effort to tackle other, other wars in other parts of the world. Yes, Ukraine has enormous poverty among, and, and crimes against its own population, but what about Ethiopia? What about Afghanistan? What about elsewhere? And I think that's what we have to take very, very seriously if we want to understand what's the role of the West, never mind the UK, in global politics today.
0: Uh, I'm just going to come to Helen in a second, but on that point about hypocrisy, it is the charge that's often made against the United States. I mean, it's the charge that's often made against Kissinger. He says the US is a force for good in the world, he's standing up for something like democracy, and he seems like a ruthless Machiavellian realpolitik politician. But you say over the last 30
1: years in particular... Can you f- just flesh out that historical well, because, time frame? Yeah, because until 1990, y- y- there was a Cold War. Yeah. I mean, the, the, there was a balance of power. Uh, from the 1990s onwards, we, we lived in a unipolar world for 15, 20 years, and it's been a period of enormous Western dominance. When we came into government in '97, the British economy was still bigger than the Chinese economy. Just think where we are today. I mean, the world's changed, big time. Uh, and... Um, In that period, there has been some enormous achievement. If you think about the way in which the the Millennium Development Goals that were enunciated in 2000, they really did help cut global poverty in a really serious way, not by as much as the Chinese government's um, policies brought its own people out of poverty, but there was a sense of global consensus. I I think that um, now, if you look at where things are, even before COVID, the sense that the West wasn't living up to its own promises on climate, probably above all, but also on global poverty issues, and then on issues of war crimes. You see, America's ability to argue that the Russian regime should be prosecuted in respect of war crimes is fatally undermined by its own unwillingness to sign up to the International Criminal Corps, its own ability to argue that China should be held accountable for... Uh, overriding the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea and what it's doing in the South China Sea's undermined was America doesn't want to sign up to the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea itself. And so this hypocrisy argument is a real argument that I think we, should, we have to take seriously. Why do you think, in a sense, seen
0: from the West, from where we are, we misunderstand how the Ukraine war looks to the rest of the world? And, David, you are talking about many of the world's most populous nations, right? So we talk about numbers of nations that are not signed up to our vision of this. But it includes India and Brazil and China and South Africa.
1: Can I just add just uh, ten words? It includes democracies, not just autocracies. Brazil, South Africa, India, uh, Indonesia, it's not just the autocracies that are lining up to haver about the Russian invasion, it's democracies too.
2: Well, I think it's in part what... David's been talking about, it's the hypocrisy question and that people in other parts of the world look at the way in which the United States uh, has acted militarily without authorization by the United Nations and they're not entirely sure what the difference is between what the United States did say in Iraq and what Russia's doing in Ukraine. Now, I'm not saying for a the moment they are the same thing. I'm just answering the perception question But I think there's something else going on as well, and it's about interests, and that's why it can't be turned into democracy versus autocracy, because Russia, at the start of the war, was the most important energy exporter by some distance in the world. And so to ask China and India in particular um, to say, we're not interested in receiving uh, energy imports from Russia, because of something that we're not entirely sure is so different than what the United States has been doing. That is a, is a, is a huge ask. And it gets worse when we look at the hypocrisy of Western countries, and I'd say particularly European um, countries here, because European countries will lecture India about buying oil, which India didn't actually do before the war. But if India wasn't buying oil now from Russia then India wouldn't also be exporting refined petroleum products to European countries who don't want to buy oil directly from Russia. So we're all in complicit in the ongoing position of Russia on the energy side of the world economy. And then and this issue very much ties to the climate change question. I think there's been quite a lot of self-congratulation in Europe, and I'm including Britain in that, And saying, look, we've adjusted a lot better to Russia not um, selling us gas than many people expected before the war. And in some sense, that's part of the story of relative Western unity since the 24th of February last year. But the reason why it's been possible for European countries to do that is, is because a country like Pakistan has been completely shut out of gas markets. So it has been more profitable for gas companies to break long-term contracts to Pakistan and sell the gas to European countries themselves. And then European countries say to Pakistan, why are you going back to burning coal? Well, the answer is because we're stopping them buying gas. I mean, I, I, it's not quite as simplistic as I'm putting it, but there's, there's a, there, that is the basic structure of of what is going on. So in the world constructed as it is in energy terms, is is Western governments simply cannot hand out lectures to countries that are much poorer than them and judge them for the fact that they still want to do energy business with Russia.
0: David, I don't know if you want to come back on that, but I do also need to ask, I mean, Helen mentioned Iraq. I mean, that 30-year period does also include the period, let's characterise it as the war on terror and includes the Clinton administration before 9-11, as well as some of the things that the Clinton administration did, as well as the George W. Bush administration. How much damage do you think that did do to Western claims to stand up for core values of international order
1: and justice? Real, real damage. Much greater damage than I expected. I was the schools minister in 2003... And there's, and I voted for the war, I supported the government's position. There's no question in my mind about quite how serious a mistake that was. Absolutely no question. And, and when did that... It was, a it was a strategic mistake because Afghanistan was not finished. It was a strategic mistake because of the way it threw up in the air a balance of power that existed regionally within the Middle East... And it was a strategic mistake because of the global lesson that it's allowed to be taught. And so I think you're absolutely right to raise it, uh, and it, it's on the charge sheet. I don't believe myself that it excuses what's happened subsequently in Ukraine, but I think it's a very, very serious point and um, one of the, m- the deepest regrets I've got from my time in politics, no question about it. Um, so... Yes, that is part of the story. And that came from a whole range of different sources. But I think that we've also got to recognize that there's one other thing going on as I look at global politics. One is this fragmentation that's powered in part by the rise of other countries, but also by charges against the West. But there's a second thing that's, that's going on. Our world is far more interconnected than ever before. I mean, we're, we're living off the back of the pandemic, off the back of the um, climate crisis, which is, which is today's crisis, not tomorrow's crisis. Um, the, the global economy is more tied than ever before. And I think it's these two things and the way they interact, the, the political fragmentation on the one hand and the global interconnections on the other that, are, that make this a particularly distinctive and difficult period. Because we've, never ha- we, we've had before rising powers uh, China's rise is unusual for its speed the growth of its economy, but there have been Plenty of periods of history where dominant powers have faced rising economic powers We've never had a period where the do- where the rising power has had such a stake in the economy of the dominant power Nor in which the do- dominant power the US has been so dependent on the rising power and that's what makes this particularly dangerous and difficult I think because we've got these two tectonic shifts going on, the fragmentation on the one hand and the connection on the other. And, that's what, uh, and the stakes are very, very high, because we've got to make up for lost time in all sorts of areas to do with the management of those global risks.
0: And Helen, there was a period in, particularly the 1990s, the more euphoric phase of the digital revolution, where the assumption was interconnectedness was just both good for global order and good for democracy. But as David says, actually, interconnectedness is one of the most dangerous things that... We face, I mean, the, the China-American relationship is a kind of codependency in which it's not clear who, if anyone, is in charge. I mean, is it, is it dangerous? Or is it that we should be grateful that we're living in a world of an established power and a rising power where they do depend on each other in so many ways?
2: I think it's much more dangerous than not dangerous. And I think part of the reason for that is because the nature of climate change and the urgency of an energy transition means that however much there is an interdependence between China and the United States about climate change itself and about a number of economic interdependencies, they're also profoundly in competition with each other about who is going to dominate the low-carbon energy age. And in this case the rising power has got considerable advantages over the dominant power. I mean, I'm generally somebody who thinks that the story about a decline in American power is overdone and that that's not really the world in which um, we live. But it is undoubtedly the case that China is in a much better position where the energy transition is concerned and the geopolitics of that, not least because China dominates the supply chains around the extraction and distribution um, of metals than the United States is. The United States is playing catch-up. Washington, I think, was terrified once it understood in 2015 when the Chinese leadership issued its Made in China 2025 strategy at just how strategic China was, not only in terms of high-tech manufacturing and metal supply chains, but in terms of electric vehicles. You know, they are the world's leaders there. And I think that when you have a situation where the climate aspect of it requires really very strong cooperation, but the who is going to dominate geopolitically the future is bound up to the climate change question via the fact of the fact that you actually have to have alternative energy and China's got the advantages at the moment. That's part of the danger in which we live, even before we get onto the Taiwan question.
0: And David, you've just come back from Nairobi as you said that there is there clear voice suspicion of American hypocrisy at the moment. What is the view of China? I mean, China is a dominant force in Africa for some of the reasons that Helen said. This includes mineral extraction.
1: Is there equivalent suspicion of China? Yes, there is. Remember, the debt distress that 50 countries now face is the product of rising interest rates in the West. We know that. But who are the debts owed to? The debts are increasingly owed to China. And they're owed to the Chinese government, and they're owed to private lenders who are backed by the Chinese government. So, if you think about a country like uh, Pakistan, which you mentioned earlier, um, in many ways it's close to China. China has been a quote-unquote all-weather friend of Pakistan, but Chinese the Chinese position now, in which they're being ar- Pakistan is asking for debt restructuring. That is not a gift of the West. The, 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 the key decision-maker on Pakistan's debt restructuring is the Chinese. So the boot is on the other foot. And many of the Chinese loans that involved building infrastructure, which was warmly welcomed, it was built by Chinese laborers, not by Pakistani or Kenyan laborers. So is there suspicion of both the dominant the, the dominant power and the rising power? I would argue yes. But I would argue that there is a... Constancy and a long-termism about China's engagement—you mentioned in Africa—that is enormously valued. The fact that the United States can't get its ambassadorial nominees through the Senate because of broken politics, so there isn't an American ambassador in key countries—that's a that's a huge problem. There isn't an American ambassador in Kenya, but. Uh, there's huge sense that the West has to play catch-up. And I think that's real. The Belt and Road Initiative is a multi-country enterprise. There's no, yet, no proper Western equivalent to that. One of the ways in which we are
0: all profoundly interconnected, and this is a striking feature of American power, particularly in the last 10 years, is that almost all of us, maybe all of us in this room, are reliant on a very small number of American technology companies for some of the things that we use every day. And the dominance of the, the tech behemoths is as great as any in corporate history. I mean, these companies have gone from next to nothing. Not just We tend to fixate on how Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos have gone from nothing to the richest human beings in history. But the corporations that have been the vehicles for that have done the same thing. But the same thing has also happened in China. So you know, we are completely dependent on those American companies. But no one in China is because China has its equivalent companies, Baidu and WeChat and all the rest. And so we're also seeing a world of deep interdependence dominated by these two powers and their corporations. That also, to me, seems potentially extremely dangerous. It's both The digital world is as connected as any form of human existence in our history. And at the same time, we're seeing these huge concentrations of power, corporate power and political power, And it's American and Chinese. I'm worried about that. And in neither case does there seem to be the political will to tackle it. More in the Chinese case than in the American case. The Chinese state is doing a lot more to take on the power of the big tech corporations than the American state is, partly because of divisions in America. But there are huge concentrations of power in a super interconnected world.
2: There are, but I think there's something else that's pretty important to this story is is that all these tech companies rely on semiconductor chips and they rely on particularly on advanced semiconductor chips that are largely manufactured in one place in Taiwan, um, which is central to the geopolitical tension between the United States and China. So the tech aspect of this makes the world very dangerous in itself. And I think that what we can see Um, is that the United States, and it began under Donald Trump and it's continued under Joe Biden, actually and actively is trying to constrain China's technological development. Now, I'm not making a judgment at the moment about the, the rights and wrongs of that, in the sense that for the Americans, China's technological development is a geopolitical threat, because the rule of the Chinese Communist Party permeates through everything in China, including these corporations and that if it's a geopolitical threat, Washington thinks that it needs to respond to that. So we've got the corporate tech power, but the actual resource on which any tech power is dependent is also subject to this really quite acute geopolitical tension between the two states concentrated in a place that the Chinese leadership is determined over, let's say, a few decade period will become part of mainline China.
1: Well, we told you this was going to be the happy panel, so I'm (laughs) glad that we've got that. Uh, I have a slightly different take in that I think that what's happened in Washington in the last two or three years is that they really have woken up to the the Chinese challenge. That's now bipartisanship, and and there's a danger of a sort of bidding war. But here's the thing that's interesting to me the China challenge has been used to turbocharge the decarbonization of the American economy. And it is impossible to overstate the significance of what's called the Inflation Reduction Act, but is actually a trillion-plus dollars devoted to decarbonizing the American economy. It's officially $365 billion, which is a lot of money. I mean, just to get this in perspective, the UK economy is a $3 trillion economy. So, officially, this Inflation Reduction Act is a $365 billion play. In fact, it's a $1.2, $1.3 trillion play on rebooting the American economy through tax incentives for decarbonization. Now, in other words, what's happened is a national security argument has been aligned with a climate security argument. And there's now, yes, there's a bidding war to be anti-Chinese, but there's a bidding war between the Chinese, the Americans, and the EU over who c- who's going to win the low-carbon race. The Chinese are clearly winning on solar, and the price of solar has absolutely uh, gone through the floor, which is good globally. But you've now got this competitive race to be the low-carbon leaders. I always argued when I was foreign sec 15 years ago that we had to negotiate our way to a low-carbon future. What's happening is we are now competing our way to a low-carbon future. I mean, the UK's separated itself, so we'll come to that in a moment. But the EU play, the Chinese play, the American play, for the first time, they're all three of them really trying to motor on a low-carbon industrial policy. There's all sorts of leakage, there's all sorts of problems. But I think it's really important to understand quite what a big play this is. And I want to come on in a moment to more positive visions of how the order in the 21st
0: century might be less gloomy than we've made out. But I do want to ask you, David, about Taiwan. And You were Foreign Secretary, say you were Foreign Secretary now, or at some point in the future. One of the things that I think is hardest for people in the West to understand about the Russian invasion of Ukraine is the motivation, because it looks to us, particularly in the way that it's played out, so self-defeating. On the other hand, you know, Putin said he would do it, and he did it. And he gave reasons for doing it, and they were reasons that don't make a lot of sense to people outside of Russia, because you have to be inside a kind of Russian mindset. They have deep historical roots. They're to do with an understanding of Russian identity and history. Now, the Chinese leadership have said the same things about Taiwan for a long, long time. And it's often hard for people in the West to know whether to take that seriously. I think Helen was implying that we should take it seriously. That they, They're not saying it because they don't mean it. They're saying it because they do mean it. Well,
1: they've said it since 1949. Yeah, but they've been and, saying it a lot recently too. Yeah, and, there is, and, and they've got an important 100th anniversary in 2049. Uh, and that's the kind of timeline that is thought about. Look, one, Chi- one China policy is absolutely core to the identity and the legitimacy and the self-understanding of the Chinese Communist Party. And that explains a lot about the Hong Kong situation. And Helen's definitely right. We should take seriously what the Chinese are saying about, uh, about Taiwan. Equally, we should take equally seriously what the Taiwanese are saying about the future of Taiwan. This is now a thriving democratic society Um, It's an economically critical society for the global economy, including the Chinese uh, economy. And I think that my own view is that some of the um, predictions about imminent Chinese military action uh, towards Taiwan are wrong. I don't see that as an imminent uh, issue. But the Chinese system does have the ability to think beyond the end of its nose. And we now have a situation where all other things being equal, the Chinese leadership is fixed for the next 10 years, not just the next four years as in our system. And I think that does need to be taken seriously. I think that there's one part of the Ukraine argument that I think is very badly misunderstood. Because you're right, there was a Russian decision. But essentially, the Ukraine war, in my mind, is a failure of deterrence. And essentially, the kremlin did not believe what western leaders said about a determination to defend ukraine there's no question in my mind the kremlin is surprised by the resistance that the ukrainians have put up it's surprised by the unity of the west it's surprised by the military commitment of the west and it's surprised by the economic um, response of the west including the energy response in in Germany and the rest of Europe. Remember, Germany was massively dependent. It has actually flipped out of uh, uh, its dependence on Russian gas. So I think there's a deterrence argument that should be played in if you want to start drawing Ukraine-Taiwan parallels. Okay. So
0: there are three more things I want to ask, then we'll leave a little bit of time for questions. So if democracy versus autocracy is not the way to understand the fundamental order of the 21st century for the reasons that we've discussed, including that many of the growing democracies are deeply suspicious of, let's call it Western democracy, what is the basis on which we should try and conceive or construct a stable international order for not the whole of the 21st century, but say to take us to 2050, which allows us to see that we are, as it were, aligned with the people that we want to be aligned with. What is the basis for that? You don't have to answer that question. Helen's looking quite
1: sceptically Well, I, I'm—I I'm, know you. I've got, got my answer, yeah, but you maybe know. you should give your answer to that. No,
2: I'll respond to your answer. I think. Okay, you—you you,
1: <laughs> you do it, Shulkar. Somehow it down. this feels like I'm a student again, going into a, uh, going into an oral exam with two uh, professors. Look, my my take on this is 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 really deeply felt, and I've learnt it from my own work in the humanitarian sector because of what the impunity that I see in conflict zones around the world. My take is that democracy versus autocracy is not just wrong for the reasons you've said. It's also wrong because Western democracy is struggling with itself. It's it's got internal uh, challenges. And it's a domestic arrangement. No one's talking about global democracy. What we face globally, in my view, is a very clear choice between impunity, on the one hand, impunity is decision-making without accountability, it's power without responsibility, it's crimes without punishment. That is impunity. The alternative to impunity is accountability and the rule of law. And we do not need new international laws. They were written very well after 1945. And by the way, in parenthesis, the Chinese leadership liked to claim that even though it happened before 1949, China was critical to the writing of the post-Second World War international laws. They're incorporated in UN conventions. They're about the dignity of the human person and about the inviolability of international, of of national territories. That set of laws has never been properly defended. We don't need new laws, we need to defend the laws that we've got. And the alternative to the international rule of law is international impunity, which is the direction that we're going in and why I've written about this age of impunity. So I, I feel very, very strongly that that the coalition to be built is a coalition in defence of the rule of law, and that's why I would put Ukraine in that basket. Ukraine is a democracy, and, it's de- and Ukrainians are defending their democracy. The rest of us should be defending the international rule of law, which is that it's Ukraine's choice to decide its future, not Russia's. So my pitch would be that it's the rule of law that should bind international understanding and that is the basis of having an ordered approach to the, the world of the future.
2: I mean, I agree entirely that you know, what's at stake in the Russia's war against Ukraine is Ukraine's national sovereignty. And that, that, I think Ukraine should be defended, even if Ukraine were an authoritarian state. It should be defended because most people in Ukraine do not want to live under Russian rule and that they were a nation-state that was protected under international um, law. I think I'm perhaps less sanguine than David about framing things around the idea of international law and multilateral rules because I'm not so convinced that there's that much evidence that they were upheld at any point, really, in the post-war period. And this comes back to the question of the nature of American power, that generally, I would say, American presidents have been keen on international rules and international law when it's convenient for the projection of American power and not really very interested in them when it's not. I think it's crucial that we try and find areas of international cooperation uh, that address the central questions that are propelling our world into disorder. And that has to, I think, in part be about the real risks about resource conflict, particularly in regard to the energy transition. And I think that Dave is absolutely right in the sense that the fact that there is geopolitical competition about low-carbon energy could have some advantages, particularly to the extent that low-carbon energy, which it really does, depends upon technological innovation. If everybody's trying to get there and somebody gets there, that's a good thing. But if you start to think about the metal resources that are necessary for that energy transition and we just have competition economically between the United States, China and the European Union without any new rules in order to deal with that competition, I think we're going to struggle. And that's the part I think that even if we accept the old international rules could still have some purchase and they they do in respect to something like Ukraine... They're not a great deal of help, I think, about the kind of geopolitical competition that is going to be a significant part uh, of our, all our lives um, over the next decades.
0: Okay, we're relatively short of time. There are too many Davids on this stage. I thought maybe I was right, but it was you. <laughs> um, two questions you can answer as briefly or, or a little bit longer if you'd like. The first one, Helen talked about American presidents, you know, when it suits them, they will uphold the international rule of law, and when it doesn't, they won't. I'm not going to ask you who's going to win in 2024. I'm not going to ask you what might happen afterwards. I simply want to know, a second Donald Trump presidency, does it, does it make more or less everything we've just been talking about moot? Uh,
1: no, it makes it bad. Uh, I mean, look, one, uh, once is a mistake, twice is a habit. And so for... For for If America elects Donald Trump again, you're going to see, I think, a revenge presidency Mm. because uh, it's revenge that is animating every fibre of his being. And it is not a revenge against people who are threatening American democracy by storming the Capitol. It's revenge against um, those he perceives to have thwarted his ambitions last time. And so I think there are... Massive consequences for American America's future, uh, but frankly, also for everything we've talked about in terms of the global system. Um, it, it would be a, a presidency marked by impunity and isolationism in equal measure. I think.
2: Yeah. I think that a second Trump presidency would be worse than the first. I think it would be even more difficult for him to have any kind of stable administration than it was the first time round. Think about all those cabinet ministers, including at defence, that he went... Cabinet secretaries, I should say, including at defence, that he um, went through. And I think that as things got more desperate, it would probably be more difficult to constrain him than it was last time. Because if you recall that twice I think it was, he tried to withdraw all American troops from Syria and he was pulled back because people wouldn't essentially implement what he was trying to do. If you think about Russia, there was one point, I want to say it was in um, 2017, it was either 2017 or 2018, where Congress passed legislation that preemptively stopped him withdrawing sanctions on Russia. And that, that, again, constrained his options. I think that the things that kind of not kept him in you know, line, because that's obviously not what happened, but certainly did not allow his worst instincts to be acted upon, it would be harder this time, partly because of his own mindset, uh, as David had said, but also, I think, because whilst his... Opposition to forever wars in the Middle East, as he called them in 2016, was part of how he won in 2016. I don't think it was pivotable to how he won in 2016. But I think in any scenario in which he won 2024, then a desire for the United States to pull back from supporting Ukraine so much would be part of that. And it would immediately come to... Um, to, head, to a head, and I'm not sure that he would be constrained in the way in which he was over Syria.
0: Finally, where does the UK
1: fit in, David, into this this world? Well, we've got to be clear about where we're starting from, which is from a position of enormous self-harm on the global political scene, not just because of our own domestic difficulties, but obviously we committed an act of unilateral political disarmament through Brexit. We, we, we separated ourselves from our closest geographical and political allies. I mean, I think there are three questions for the UK. One, what do we stand for? And I would say we stand for the global rule of law. Who are our allies? I think they are, first of all, on our nearest continent, but they're also any country willing to stand up for the global rule of law. The third thing is, what can we afford? And... The truth is that our economic situation deeply um, undermines our global pretensions uh, in, in politics. But I, I do th- So that means that I don't think we can uh, recover overnight from the slashing of the aid budget. We're not going to be able to have a massive increase in our military budget. We're going to have to make our diplomacy and our intelligence really work for us globally, because those are relatively small budgets. And we're going to have to be the super-connected nation, because... That is the only way in which we can begin to uh, uphold our values and uphold our commitments, which are real. And we are a country that still sits on the UN Security Council. We have to justify our presence, and I would link that back to the global rule of law, because if we're not playing that role on the UN Security Council, then we're going to further undermine our global position. And just given the theme of what we've been talking about tonight, how much of that
0: depends on our relationship to the United States, or do we need to get beyond fixating on that?
1: The United States is picking up the phone to Paris, to Berlin, and to Brussels. We've got to understand that there is a new geopolitics around the world. And we will be strong when we're bringing something to the table, partly through what we do ourselves, but also who we're partnering with. It's a world where you have to multiply, where you have to exercise leverage, not rely on on the past, frankly. Helen, briefly, because
0: we'll come to questions. Does the UK's future depend upon American power?
2: Yeah, I think it it does to a considerable extent. And I think there is going to be quite a hard question in the next few years about how the UK responds to the Inflation Reduction Act and America's low-carbon industrial strategy. Because essentially, it's going to be incredibly difficult for any European country or the European um, Union uh, to get in to those supply chains that are either going to be dominated by China, as they are now, or they're going to be dominated by the United States if the geopolitical ambition behind the Inflation Reduction Act succeeds. And The only way to have a part of that will be to sign a free trade agreement with the United States. And I think that we are going to have to face in this country that question. I think it would be domestically, politically difficult. We can see that the the post-Brexit governments have backed away from pursuing that. And it isn't just, I think, about the Northern Irish question. It's also not wanting to sign up to what the terms of trade would the Americans would demand. But I think the Inflation Reduction Act changes our choices.
0: So just...
1: Do you want to respond? Because the implication of that is that it's not our nearest neighbours who matter most. No. Well, I think we get leverage in Washington through our alliance in Europe, um, as well as through our commitments to Washington. And I think that... Um, If you bank on America wanting to ally with the UK and ignore um, the possibility of a Trump presidency, you're undermining your own position. And so I think we've got to... Foreign strength comes from domestic strength. We've got to sort ourselves out domestically. Secondly, it comes from alliances. Our alliance with the US is very strong, but it's stronger when we're allied elsewhere.
0: The Hay Festival is still going on through to this weekend if you want to find out more about any upcoming events just go to hayfestival.com and you can hear much more of Helen Thompson on her new podcast. It's called these Times from Unheard it's with Tom McTague it's highly recommended next week on this podcast I'm going to be talking to Leah Ippy and Daniel Chandler about the philosopher John Rawls Did he really have the secret source? for justice and fairness in the 21st century. Please join us for that, and please follow us on Twitter at PPF Ideas, where you can get links and updates on all of our upcoming episodes. My name is David Runciman, and this has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books.